God's most sacred and holy word in order that we can see Jesus, in order that his word would transform us. So I'm going to ask you at this time to turn your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 7 as we turn with hearts saying, Jesus, you truly are the center of my joy. Without you, I would have no joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Amen. And weeping may endure for a night. Oh, somebody. But joy. Touch a neighbor said it's, it's coming. Oh, man. Joy is coming in the morning. Amen. And the morning don't necessarily have to be the a.m. The morning can be when you just simply wake up. Amen. And recognize and appreciate the, the, the grace of God. Mark chapter 7, and we have a, a bunch of verses we're going to read today. We're going to read through 23 verses of scripture. Mark chapter 7. If you don't have a, a Bible, you can look in with a neighbor. Neighbor, be kind. Amen. If you don't know where Mark is, feel free to go into the front of the Bible, into the uh, index. You'll have a page number. Um, and I say that because I remember when I was younger and did not know where things was, sometimes I would just kind of act like I did in, in fear of other people not knowing it. And, and I would be in a chapter that's not the chapter the preacher was preaching on and kind of cover it up and fake like I knew where he was. Amen. Touch your neighbor and say, you don't got to go through all that. Amen. <laughs> don't, don't, don't be like Pastor Jamal. Amen. Humble yourself. Amen. This is a big book. <laughs> 66 books. Amen. So feel comfortable, feel free. Mark chapter 7, starting at verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they had come to the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and, and copper vessels and downing, dining cotches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesize of you hypocrites as it was written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered into the house and 
left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of, his, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, we do thank you for your word. Your word is a gift from you. You have spoken to us and chosen to reveal yourself to us through these pages of scriptures. You have inspired men to write about your heart, and we thank you for that. We thank you, Father God, for the opportunity to worship together, to sing songs together about you, to hear songs, Father God, reminding us to give ourselves away to you, to hear songs, Father God, reminding us to keep moving forward, to not stop, to persevere in the faith, for you are faithful. To hear songs reminding us, Father God, that our joy is not in Nuke Nuke and Bay Bay. Our joy is found in you, Father God. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to be reminded of your goodness. Thank you, Father God, for the truth of Isaiah 55 and 11, which says, Lord, that your ways are not like our ways as far as the heaven is from the earth. You are from us. And just as it rains and it snows, Father God, and, and waters and, and fertilizes the earth and, and brings forth seed and harvest, Father God, so your word, Father God, when it goes forth, it will not come back void. It will accomplish what you have set forth, so it will heal in the way that you have ordained. Thank you, Father God, that I do not have to be creative and invent something new that all I have to do is explain what your word says and apply it to your people's life. And your spirit, Father God, will bring into fruition what you have chosen. Thank you, Father God, that you are not a God of performance, but you are of God that desires intimacy and realness and fellowship. You are God who provides us with our holiness through your son. Speak, Lord, as Samuel said. For your servant, your servant is listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's graduation season. And we have some here who have recently crossed the stage. And, and as you cross the stage, you were expecting to shake hands with a, a president or uh, the, the principal of your school. And you got your diploma and you smiled. Some of you took a picture while you were on stage and you walked off and uh, you celebrated with your family. But in 2009, for a lot of graduates uh, across the United States, uh, that wasn't the case. Uh, sure, they got their diploma, but most people were not able to shake hands with the president or the uh, uh, university chairperson or whatever. And the reason why is because in 2009, America got hit with the H1N1 pandemic. A virus just kind of spread through the land. And most presidents and principals during the time of, of handing out diplomas actually refused to shake hands with people 
for a fear of getting the virus. In 2009, the hand sanitizer sanitizing business made $119 million, up from $69.4 million in 2008. Because America now had an obsession with washing their hands. Nobody wanted to be seen as unclean, right? What if next Sunday you were to come to Forest Baptist Church and outside in the vestibule area we had tables set up and we had hand sanitizer for you. And we told you that in order to enter the sanctuary, before you came in, in order to worship God, you had to, to, to wash your hands. You had to go through this ritual. And what if when you came in next week, my sermon was about how you are unclean before God if you have failed to go through the process that we laid out in the vestibule area. Now, the germaphobes would be just excited. They'd be like, yes, he finally sees the light, amen? Germs are dangerous. This is my type of church. But for most of us, we would stand up and say, Pastor, something's wrong with that. We don't have to clean our hands in order to worship God. God is looking at our heart. So you would declare me a heretic, and hopefully you would ask for my resignation or kick me out the church because the Bible does not... Confirm, confirm that doctrine. Well, in Mark chapter 7, we, we, we see that the Pharisees have a tradition similar to what I just laid out before you. And Jesus is really going to dig into their tradition, and he's going to teach us today that what, what makes a person clean is not external rituals or traditions. He's going to show us that our problem is a lot deeper and darker than we ever imagined. And how he's the only solution to us being clean before God. So in this chapter, we see uh, uh, we'll, we'll follow a, a certain pattern as we do an overview of the first 23 verses. So from verse one through five, we'll look at how Jesus rejected the toxic tradition of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We'll look at him rejecting, rejecting their toxic tradition. And then from verse 6 to about verse 13, we'll look at how Jesus exposes the folly of their tradition. How he exposes the folly of it and shows them why it's toxic. And then in verses 14 through 23, we'll look at how Jesus not only exposes their folly, but he rescues us from their folly. He rescues us from their folly. So let's dive into the text. Verses one through five, we're going to look at how Jesus rejected the, the toxic tradition of the day. Verse one says, now when Jesus, when, excuse me, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, and that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. So we, we see right away that the religious leaders of the day, they see Jesus and his disciples probably coming back from the marketplace. And they're turning their nose up at him because Jesus and his disciples come back from the marketplace without washing their hands. 
And we see that they had a tradition, which is called the tradition of the elders. It was actually a tradition that was found. They had a whole separate book than the law of Moses that they were going by. It was called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was was laws that were put together, rules that were put together originally in order to protect people from committing sin against the laws of Moses or falling into uh, a sinful living habit. But but we'll see that this tradition began to take over. So he's explaining to his readers, Mark is, and, and we see in, in, in verse three that he has this in parentheses. And what he's the reason why they're in parentheses is because uh, he's probably writing to a Gentile audience. He's explaining to this this Roman Gentile audience who this book is, is to that that this was not written in, in the law of Moses, but rather this was just something that they came up with. And then we see in verse five that they ask Jesus a question. They, they come to Jesus and they say, why in the world are you not doing so? Why are you not following our tradition? So we see that Jesus has his boys with them, his disciples, and they are not in compliance with the way the religious leaders have, have set. And we see that they're just rejecting it. They're just ignoring it. And, and we see this throughout Mark, that Jesus is frustrating the religion of the day. But what's funny here is as we think about the Pharisees and as we think about these leaders, uh, we see that they have come all the way from Jerusalem up into northern Galilee, and they're now spying on Jesus because his fame is just spreading throughout the land. And they want Jesus to bend to their traditions. They want, want Jesus to conform to their pattern. And this is really foolish because as we read the New Testament, even though they were seeing the Pharisees as the, the spiritual hero, heroes of the day, they really were busy and barren. I mean, they were washing all the time. They, they had all of these laws, all of these rules that people had to keep scrupulously if they were going to be seen as clean. But there was no power in their religion. No power. But Jesus, on the other hand, he's not keeping up with these laws. He's, he's busy, but he's not barren. This man is rocking the world. He is healing the blind. He, he is bringing, bringing, opening the, the deaf's ear. He is bringing insight with his teaching. People are walking away saying, who is this? How is he teaching with such authority? And yet they want him to bend to their tradition. They want him to fit in their box. But how, how often do we try to make Jesus fit into our box? How, how often do we try to make God fit into our traditions and our circles? And Mark is showing us that Jesus recognizes his worth. He, he, he knows who he is. He's saying, I don't fit into your life. You fit into my life. Because I'm bearing fruit. So we see that Jesus rejects their tradition. Now we're going to see that Jesus exposes the folly of their tradition. Look at, look at verse number six. He's going to expose the, the folly of their tradition. 
And he starts exposing their folly by pointing to Isaiah. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? Man, he comes out hard. He says, did not Isaiah prophesy about you? And then he calls them hypocrites. Hypocrites are play actors, literally, or spiritual phonies. So when people heard that word, they they thought of a theater. He's calling the spiritual heroes of the day, the one who is the ones who are setting the mark for spirituality in front of everyone. Hypocrites. He's saying other words, you look good on the outside. You appear to be very clean, very spiritual and very religious. But I know something that other people don't know. You're good actors. Back in Chicago, my parents have or had a really big maple tree in their front yard and it was beautiful. And, you know, every time we come, we just expected to see that maple tree. Well, the last time we visited, the maple tree was cut to the root. It was being chopped up and sent away. And the reason why is because even though it looks big and pretty on the outside, it was diseased on the inside. And my father said, yeah, can you believe the city came and cut down our tree? He said the disease was just riding away and they were afraid that it was going to start spreading and contaminating other things. Jesus saying, you all are like that maple tree. And he points to Isaiah, a prophetic word, and listen to what he says. He says, these people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Jesus points to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 29, where Isaiah says these words. And, and really what he's doing is he's saying, you all need to go back and read that chapter. Because if they read that chapter, what they would have discovered is that Isaiah was talking to the Jews. And at that time, the Jews, their religion was just so barren. It was so external, but, but they really didn't have a relationship with God. But in the latter part of that chapter, Isaiah begins to talk about how one day the field that was barren would bear fruit. The, the wilderness would be a, a fruitful place. And then he goes on and says, Lebanon, people who are blind will now begin to see. The, the, those who are strong will become weak and those who are weak will become strong because the spirit of the Lord is moving in the land. So Jesus points them back into Isaiah and he quotes Isaiah, not just to, 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 to say these words, but he's trying to point them to a bigger picture by saying, guess what? The time is now where the blind will have sight. The time is now where those who think they are spiritual because they're going through the motions, they will become blind. And those who are blind and weak, they will become strong. They will get the message that God intends for them. God desires us. He desires our hearts. He, he, he desires us to be near to him. Look what he says. He says, your heart is far 
from me. We have a God that desires relationship, a God that desires nearness. Nearness. And oftentimes tradition can get in the way, rules can get in the way of us being near to God. So look at how he exposes it. He he exposes it by making this major point. He says, your tradition has now usurped the authority of Scripture. You leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of man. And then he goes on in verse 9. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. So this is what happened. What what, what started off as a good intent by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, a good intent to not break the law of Moses, ended up going really bad. They started saying, let's put a fence up. So that we can stay pure. But then that fence became their religion. So what he's saying is. Be careful. To not allow your traditions. Your rules. Which may be good. Be careful to not allow them to become a requirement. Because often when we have traditions and rules, we, they slowly become a requirement. They become something that we start imposing on other people. And then they become an idol. And then, instead of fulfilling the law of God and having hearts that love God with all of our heart and our mind and our soul, and that loves our neighbor as ourselves, these things become what consumes us. So let me, let me break it down. So, even in our tradition or our, the way that we worship God as, as a people, we have some traditions that were started, and they were started for a good reason, but they eventually became an idol. And they eventually became a, a source, source of pride and something that actually separated people or made people feel in, in, inferior because they were not in line with it. For example, church clothes. All right. Church clothes. Started out out of slavery for African-Americans as a maybe a good idea as we were uh, pursuing uh, uh, some esteem about ourselves. And we came to the church and we said, let's put on our best clothes because we serve a good God. And it started off good. People put on church clothes because they out of a respect for God. But over time, it became a requirement where if you came to church without your church clothes, it maybe wasn't said, but people kind of look at you like, why are you not dressed up for church? And then that became an idol where now when people, not necessarily in our circle, but when people don't come to church dressed up or dressed the way we think they should be dressed, then we kind of look at them and say, "Mm mm-mm, they don't know no better. 
or we conclude that they're unclean and they don't know God. Right? So something that started off good turned into a requirement, which turned into an idol. Jesus is saying you have to be very careful with your traditions because your traditions and your rules and your rituals that you're establishing, they are not making you clean before God. Now, I've seen the reverse. When I first moved down to Louisville and uh, came here to Forest, uh, I had a speaking engagement away one time, so I went to a church in the evening and I preached And a friend of mine wanted me to visit his church, and he was really excited about his church. The church was newer then. It was blossoming. It was blooming. And he just kept telling me that you can come dressed in absolutely anything, and no one will pay attention to you because you can self-expression is what the church is about. And I said, great. I said, well, I'm coming from a speaking engagement, so I'm going to have on a suit um, just to give you a heads up. He said, oh, you'll be fine because we don't look at what people have on. So I walk in the door with a suit and they looked at me like, man, you are out of place. So this was a place of self-expression where now they were trying to break away from a bad tradition. Right. But they had became what they were trying to avoid. (laughs) This happens all the time. We, We tradition that we set up to protect ourselves becomes a requirement, which becomes an idol. This can happen in dating relationships. Sometimes I talk to people who are dating or courting, and they find, believe they found the one, and they, they say, well, you know, I just was talking to, to a young lady out of state, and, and she said, well, you know, these are the rules that I have in place, and, and if it's going to pursue me, I think these are good rules. Can, can you go through the rules? I said, sure, and I went through them, and I said, well, uh, what's the intent of these rules? She said, it's to keep me pure. I said, well, great, but be careful. So she had a rule that said, well, we're not going to kiss before marriage. I said, well, hallelujah. (laughs) Amen. That's great. If the intent is for your heart to stay pure before the Lord, but be careful to not impose your desire on everyone else, because the Bible doesn't necessarily say that you can. All right. So what happens is some people who are in that camp, no kiss, no, absolutely no kissing before marriage. What they begin to do is they begin to wear that as a badge of honor. That rule that they have made now becomes their standard of righteousness. It is what makes them right. Or it is what makes, gives them pride. It is what they can point to and say, look, I'm clean, I'm holy, I'm good. And then the people who don't do that, They say you're unclean because you don't do it. So they start off with a good intent and before you know it, it becomes an idol and there becomes an attitude where I can I look down on you because you're not following my set of rules. You're not following my set of rules. Are there some some rules, some some traditions that you have? that have now become kind of the, the main thing. You know, for some of us, it's church busyness. It's just being busy, right? Uh, we think that if we are on a committee or we do this, this is what makes us right before God. And people who aren't on these committees or people who aren't in these ministries or who aren't doing things the way we do it, 
then they're unclean before God. As a culture, uh, another tradition, another thing that we have done as a church is when it comes to baptism. All right? (laughs) I love the smiles. Amen. Baptism in our culture. The Bible says that a person is baptized. They're they're taken down into the water once as, as as a sign that they believe and they identify with the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that they believe that Jesus rose from the grave and they are putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And the Bible says that we then baptize a person when we can see evidence or we can see fruit of that person loving Jesus. But somewhere down the line in our culture, in our tradition, baptism became less about a, 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 a confirmation of a person loving Jesus and committing to Jesus and more about a family tradition. So we baptize people or our kids when they get a certain age, not because we see evidence that they love Jesus. And I, we have, have seen here at the churches, we have started to try to teach what true, true baptism is, that some people have gotten upset and, and left and be, been very angry because we said, you know, little Johnny isn't ready for baptism. Well, little Johnny is old enough, and I was baptized when I was two. Or great-grandma needs to see her grandkids baptized, right? That is a, a tradition that we now exalt over the word of God. And fulfilling that tradition now becomes, for parents and grandparents, their righteousness, your badge of honor, saying, look, I've done a good job. We're doing a good job. We're a Christian family because our kids are baptized. You all with me? Jesus is saying, do not exalt your tradition, your rules. Be very careful because they will become your standard of righteousness and holiness. And you will end up having a religious system that is all about external things going through motions, busyness, but you will actually be barren. You will be far from God as these religious leaders are. So Jesus then goes and he continues to make a point. Let's look at verse 10. He says, for Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So, so Moses explain, uh, so Jesus explains that Moses in the Ten Commandments had a, had a commandment, the fifth commandment, which is to honor your mother and your father. And what they had did, they had made a ritual and they had a tradition that says, well, what you can do is, is you can take your land, for example, and you can declare it Corban. And what Corban declared was that this land now goes to God. This possession that I have that could be worth some money if I die now goes to God. And what they were doing is the Pharisees and, this, and, 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 and all, they had set it up where the religious system that day constantly had monies coming in, but people's families, when they died, were not getting the benefit 
of their death. And parents, if their kids died, would not be able to, to, to get their land or whoever. And, and what they were doing is, is, uh, is a lot of them was using this as an excuse or a, a way to not honor their parents. Because maybe they didn't like their parents. It was kind of a spiritual loophole that says we don't have to fulfill this commandment because we're doing this with our wealth. And Jesus is saying, you are breaking God's commandment. You are not honoring your parents by declaring things Corbin. (laughs) And what's funny about declaring things Corbin is even though you said that this is going to be given to this group, you got to keep it as long as you are alive. So nobody else got to benefit it. You got to still live in there, but but your parents didn't get to benefit from it. So Jesus is warning them. He's saying you have this pseudo, this this spirituality, this this the spirituality that is impressing people. But really at the heart of it, you don't love God and you don't love your neighbor. So he exposes their toxic tradition. Next, we'll see that Jesus not only exposes their tradition. But now we'll see him rescuing them from their condition. So in verse 14, we read these words, these words, he says, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you and understand. Now, this is a a, a wonderful picture, because often throughout the book of Mark, we see that Jesus is almost kind of uh, that that Mark is almost showing Jesus as kind of the, the greater Moses. So. The Jews are in bondage right now because there is a false spirituality going around. Okay, the religious leaders have put them in bondage and they are now missing the heart of God. Jesus is freeing them from spiritual blindness, just as Moses freed Israel from Egypt. In Deuteronomy chapter four, we see that after they are freed from Egypt, Moses calls the people of Israel together in the wilderness and he says, hear me, hear me and understand. Jesus is saying, listen, I have true freedom for you. I am going to offer you a true spirituality, a true relationship, but I need you to understand. And what does he need them to understand? He said, I need you to understand that there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defiles him. So Jesus is about to flip their whole idea of religion upside down. He's about to flip the way they understand God and the way they understand themselves upside down. He says, listen to me, what defiles a person is not what goes in them, but it's what comes out of them. He says, you are completely missing the point. Sin is first an internal matter of the heart. Sin cannot be dealt with. Our weakness cannot be dealt with by external washing or even by avoiding certain foods. He's saying your problem is much deeper than you think. See, the purpose of the law of Moses and the purpose of the rules that we see as laid out in the Torah was to be a visual aid to Israel. 
and to show Israel that they stood before a holy God. So Moses, through God, gave them this law and said, we must keep this law. We must do these things. Not in order that they would believe that the law is going to, by by keeping the law and doing these things, is going to make them holy. But by, by doing these things, they're recognizing that God is holy. So in the law, we see God saying that if, if there's a person around you who has a disease, if there's a person around you who is decaying, if there's a person around you who is dirty, if they have some, some bodily fluids that are, are constantly coming out, some issues with blood, then you need to separate yourself from that person. They need to leave the camp, leave the fellow, fellowship with people and to go away. God did not do that because those people in and of themselves could not please God through faith. But he did that as a visual aid, as an illustration to constantly remind people that God is not broken. And that God is holy. And the effects of sin. See, they were told you cannot touch a dead body. Because God wanted them to understand the penalty of sin is death. And that when you sin against a holy God, you are now separating yourself from fellowship with that God. He wanted them to understand that sin defiles a person and makes them dirty. So he said, if you are dirty, if you are, if if you do not line up with these requirements that I put in place, then you are to break fellowship with people and to go outside of Jerusalem, outside of the camp, until you're clean again. And that was to be a visual aid. That was to be a reminder that sin breaks fellowship between people. Just like we don't want to be around people who are unclean or or dirty, who haven't bathed, or or, or, uh, who's diseased, and and we we just typically try to to stay away if there's a, a smell from them, just by nature. God is saying, that is what your sin does. Your sin separates you. Your dirtiness separates you from your brothers, from your sisters. So it was a visual aid. Sin, it kills, it destroys, it defiles. That's why they couldn't touch anything that was discolored or tarnished or disfigured because God wanted them to see that when you sin against me, that is exactly what happens. You are disfiguring your image. The image that I created you in is being disfigured. But rather than take the law And to take it as a visual aid, what the Jews were doing is they were saying that, no, by keeping these things, by by washing, by by constantly saying, staying clean. If you if you keep these things, you are acceptable before God. And Jesus saying, no, it is not that that defiles you. What defiles you is what is in your heart. You have missed the point of the law. You have missed the point of Moses. Hear me. Washing your hands is not going to keep you clean. What's going to keep you clean is washing your heart. Then in verse 18, it says, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? So he's talking to a group and then he leaves that group 
and he's with his disciples. The Bible says they go into a house and his disciples, who he expects to get this because they've been with him for so long, they don't understand it. So Jesus said, let me break it all the way down to you. And it shows that even as believers, sometimes we are slow to understand stuff, but, but Jesus is gracious and he is willing to, to work with us and to constantly reteach us what we must learn. So he says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters the heart, but not his stomach and is expelled? And listen what Mark says. Thus he declared all foods clean. This is radical. This is radical. If the Pharisees had had heard this or really realized what Jesus was saying, they probably would have picked up stones to stone. Because in the law of Moses, there was all these food regulations, as we see laid out in the book of Leviticus, where the people of God could not eat specific foods. And if you ate a specific food, you were declared unclean by the group. You had to leave the group, you had to leave the camp, and you were put outside. And they thought that by, not, by refraining from these foods, they were clean. And when they saw Gentiles eating these foods, they said, oh, you're filthy, you're unclean. In fact, if a Gentile touched them, they would go and take a full bath. Jesus saying, the food is not what makes you dirty. You guys got it all wrong. In Acts chapter 10, we see after Jesus is resurrected that Peter has a vision from God. And in his vision, God reveals to him that they are able, he is able to eat anything. And the Bible says that God had to come to Peter in that vision three times the same way. Because Peter kept saying the same answer every time God came to him. I have never eaten this before. And I would not defile myself. God is like, Peter, you see these foods, you can eat them. I have never eaten eaten this before, I would not Peter. <laughs> and this was the disciples. And this is years after the death of Jesus, which shows how ingrained this idea that external performance makes you right before God was in their heart. So, by saying this, was Jesus putting an end to to the law. Was he usurping the law? Because we, we hear this and sometimes we, as Christians, we, people will ask us, well, why don't Christians keep the Old Testament law? The law says you can't wear this, you can't eat this, you can't do this. Why do we not keep that law? Is Jesus abrogating the law? Well, in light of Matthew chapter 5, we have to conclude that he's not putting an end to the law. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, I have not come to, to X out the law, but I have come in fulfillment of it. Now, what does that mean? What Jesus is saying is this. Through the life of Jesus, we are made clean. In Jesus... We have, so to speak, fulfilled the law. When Jesus died upon the cross, he took the punishment that we deserved for not being able to keep the law of Moses. So if we put our faith and trust in him, 
then we are no longer under the law. We are freed from the law and we are declared clean by God. So we don't have to keep these laws that were laid out, specifically the ritual ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, because Jesus made us clean. A great place to start, if you want to read some more about that, is the book of Hebrews. The whole book is about that. Specifically, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, talks about how we have now, through the blood of Jesus, been washed, and our consciousness have been made clear, and now we can draw near to God. So the ceremonial laws, all the laws that you see when you read in the book of Leviticus, we are no longer under because Jesus fulfilled them. He didn't abrogate them. He didn't say that they were absolutely unnecessary. He took our punishment for them and he perfectly pleased God with his life. Now, what about the Ten Commandments? If we're no longer under the law, then even in the Ten Commandments, we see that there is a Sabbath day. Why don't we keep the Sabbath day? Is the Ten Commandments, the moral law, is that still alive and relevant? Well, if we look at this text, we'll see why we still keep the moral law. And the reason why we still keep the moral law is because the moral law, specifically looking at the second part of the Ten Commandments, was all about loving your neighbor. And Jesus, in the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, He is teaching us how to love our neighbors, how to love our neighbors. Verse 21 is is not by allowing our minds to constantly conjure up evil thoughts. It's by not participating in sex outside of the sexual contact, outside of the context of marriage. It's by not stealing from our neighbor. It's by not killing our neighbor. It's by not taking our neighbor's wife or husband. It's by not coveting, wanting what our neighbor has so bad that it allows us to to mistreat our neighbor or even wish that they did not have what they had. All of these things that Jesus lays out is teaching us how to be in fellowship with our neighbor. But sin breaks that fellowship. It causes us to separate from each other when we allow our hearts to do these things. So we obey the commandments that's put out in the Ten Commandments, some of the commandments, because Jesus exalted them and taught that the reason we keep these things is because it is teaching us to commit ourselves to the second greatest commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. But the Sabbath day, he doesn't tell us to keep. The early church didn't keep. Colossians chapter 2 tells us not to keep. Hebrews tells us not to keep. Because Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our rest. Let me just say a few quick things about our heart. Jesus says what makes you clean is not traditions, rules, and washing. What makes you clean is your heart, but here's the problem. Your heart is messed up. He teaches us this principle. Sin reigns within, not from the outside. Other words, we sin because we are sinners. Not because people push us to the point of sinning. 
Look at your ver- look at your Bible. He says, from for first twenty one for from within out of the heart comes, and then he lists some things. He says that when you sin, when we do and partake in any of these things, when we curse out our coworker, when we're mean to our boss, when we tell our husband or wife to go to hell, we are doing so not because they took us there, but because we were already there. Because in our hearts, is a nature, is a seed, is a black catalog list of evil things that at any time we can bring out when we want to satisfy ourselves. That's what sin is. Sin is self-centeredness. Sin is saying, I can save myself, I can satisfy myself, I can can get out of this situation myself. I can fix this person myself if I do this myself. And at the center of sin is us. Sin is a result of self-centeredness. Sin is self-centeredness. James says, why do you fight and why do you argue? Is it not this? You do not have, so you murder. You argue, you fight because there is a desire in your heart. There's a desire in my heart that I want so bad that I am willing to not love somebody to get it. That, 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 that desire now becomes what I worship rather than Jesus. That desire now becomes what, what I'm finding my righteousness in, my identity in. And I'm clinging to this selfish desire. And it can be a good desire. It could be to have respect. It could be to be loved by, by, for you to be loved by your husband. That's what's going to be weird, amen. (laughs) That could be the desire. But the Bible never condones us to lash out and to mistreat people if we don't get what we want. When we do that, we sin and we sin because in our hearts there is wickedness. In our hearts there's wickedness. One commentator said, men are not gentle, friendly creatures wishing for love who simply defend themselves if they are attacked, but that a powerful measure of desire for aggression has to be reckoned as part of an instinctual instinctual endowment. The result is that their neighbor is to them not only a possible helper or sexual object, but also a temptation to them to gratify their aggressiveness on them, to exploit the capacity for work without working, to use them sexually without consent, to take their possessions, to humiliate them in order to feel better, to cause pain and to torture and to kill them. He's saying that the, in the heart of man, there is these selfish, self-centered desires to take what God has created, to take what is beautiful, and to use it for our own glory. He concludes in saying, men are wolves, cannibals. Have you come to see yourself as a wolf, as a cannibal? Do, do you understand the depths 
of your sin, the depth of your heart, the evil that is in your heart. And as I look at this, this, these, these verses, do, 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 do we look at these verses and say, not this is my neighbor, this is my husband, this is my cousin, this is Nuke Nuke and Bebe, but this comes out of me often. Often I have evil thoughts. Even though I'm saved and sanctified, there are times where I am just evil. Do you look at this and say, not, not just my neighbor, but there's some sexual immorality that's, that's lying dormant in my heart. And at any time... <laughs> If I'm not careful, I can go there. Do you recognize that you have been born in the sin nature of Adam? You have been cursed with that nature. And that you cannot save yourself by performing, by rituals, by traditions. You need, I need, we need a spiritual intervention. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that our heart is desperately wicked, is desperately sick above all things. Who can know it? The Lord searches our hearts and he gives according to us, to our ways and according to our deeds. Our hearts are messed up. Out of our hearts come all of these wicked things and we try To say that what's going to make us righteous is coming to church, keeping up with traditions, keeping up religion. Jesus is saying, you don't understand. If you believe that that is what's going to save you, then on the day of judgment, you are going to be shocked, Pharisees. Because you can't clean your own heart. So what's the antidote? What's the antidote for our messed up hearts? The antidote for our messed up hearts from our sin that separates us from each other and that separates us from God is Jesus. He's the only antidote. He's what we must rest in for our righteousness. You know, there's a computer program called Covenant Eyes and you can get all these wonderful programs and you can put them on your computer and and I have them on my, my digital uh, things and and wherever I type, wherever I go, a list of, of, of things will, will be sent out to some accountability partners. And with Covenant Eyes, if I was to go to a website that was unbecoming uh, and, and, and view pornography, then, then people will see that, those who will hold me accountable. But you know, I can look at that program and I can put my faith and my trust in that program and say that this program is the reason why I'm battling lust or doing well. It's not. My heart is wicked. Your heart is wicked. That program would not save us from committing sexual immorality because our heart is wicked. And I've talked to brothers who have that program who's still struggling with stuff because you'll find a way to sin if you want to sin. The only thing that can save us from loving sin more than God is Jesus. Is us putting our faith and trust in Jesus. And the only way that we are are saved from our sinful state is if we receive a new heart. And that's what God wants to give to someone here today. He wants to give you a a new heart. You are living life for yourself. And you, you think that when you stand before God that you will have a chance before God because you are a good person. The Bible teaches us that there is no such thing as a good person. That in each of our hearts, Our hearts are shaped by our sin and our iniquity that in each of our hearts there is evil lying dormant. 
No such thing. There may be nice people, but there are no good people. If you were to stand before God today, and God was to say, why should I let you into heaven, what would your answer be? Why should God let you into heaven? Why should God let me into heaven? I'm going to tell you the wrong answer. But what many of us believe, and the right answer, the only thing that can save us. You ask the average person, even, maybe even the average Christian, why should God let you into heaven? They will tell you, because I'm a good person, because I go to church, because I do my best to please Jesus. That's the wrong answer. God will say, you're telling me that you should come into heaven because you do good things? Well, let's compare your good things to your bad things. And by bad things, as we look at this list, bad things are not just actions. Bad things are attitudes. They're thoughts. We say we commit adultery if we sleep with a person that's married. God says you commit adultery if you lust for that person in your heart. We stand no chance. Not only that, our motives make us bad. Jesus said that our our motives are corrupted. If we are trying to find righteousness or, or if we do good deeds and our motives are not to glorify God, our motives is to receive praise and acclamation and, and for people to say that we're good people at the end of the day and we want, want to be celebrated, then that's a sin. That's why Isaiah said, your righteousness before God is as a filthy rag. My righteousness before God. In other words, if I stand before God and say, look, God, you should let me into heaven because I'm a pastor. You should let me into heaven because I try to read my Bible a lot. You should let me into heaven because I try to be a good husband to, jo- to, to my wife and a, a good father to Josiah and Nia. You should let me into heaven because week after week I did this and I did this and I did this. And God said, is that really what you're resting in? Is that really what you're trusting in? You should let me into heaven because I tried to do good things for Jesus. It would say, your righteousness, the list you just gave me, is as a filthy rag. That word in the Hebrew was a word that was used for a woman's minstrel cloth. That's your good deeds. The only chance we stand at entering heaven is by putting our faith and trust in Jesus' righteousness. It's by saying, you know what? In my own merit, I should not be allowed in. But in the merit of Jesus, I should be accepted because that is where my faith and that is where my trust is. Close with a reading from Romans chapter 5. There's someone here today who came in here believing that coming to church was going to make you a good person. Coming to church was going to validate you. Maybe there's a a tradition or a rule that you keep up 
and that you look up and you look to for, for your righteousness, it makes you feel good that you do this? It makes you feel like a good person? God is saying, count that as dung, like Paul did in Philippians chapter 3. He said, yeah, I'm all of this stuff, but it is dumb. It is dirty. It is nasty. My righteousness is in Jesus. We became sinners as a result of sin entering the world through Adam. As a result, we all received a death sentence. We all deserved to be outside the camp. We all were defiled. We all were unclean. There was no hope for us. The ways of sin is death. But according to Romans chapter 5, we are redeemed through one man. He says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Through Adam, we deserve to die. We have been given this disease, this sickness, this sin nature. Through Jesus, we are redeemed. We are freed. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 5, verse 5 specifically says that when we accept Jesus, Jesus, the, the, the Holy Spirit, which, which allowed that seed to be planted, then pours himself in fully into our hearts. And by the grace of God and through the Holy Spirit, we are now able to live lives, not as slaves of sin, but slaves of righteousness. If you look at this list that was laid out on Mark chapter 5 and you say, this is me all day, every day, and and I know this is me, but I want to be freed from it. Put your faith and your trust in the righteousness of Jesus. Begin to walk and to pray. David prayed, create in me a clean heart, oh God, and renew in me the right spirit. Begin to beg God, say, God, help me not to have an external religion. Pray like Joe said, not to, to have a religion that's about my outer garments, but help me to rend my heart, to have a heart that is near to you. Have a heart that's near to you. What are you resting your righteousness on? For some of us, it's the way we parent. For some of us, it's the things that we don't do. Rest your righteousness on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, there's someone here today that does not know you. Maybe they've accepted your son and his death on the cross, and they say, yes, that's my ticket into heaven, heaven. But Father, they don't know you because they are really resting their hearts on their ability to do things, external things, to please you. Father, I pray that you would save them, that you would captivate them through your spirit. I pray that you would show us, Lord, the depths of our sin. Help us, Lord, not to hide our sins behind our backs and to walk forward thinking that we're clean. Help us to see, Father God, that we desperately need you daily and that from our heart flows a whole bunch of issues. From our hearts flows self-centeredness, Father God. But only you, Lord, can make our hearts be centered on your son. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.